Section 12 of Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1, by Albert Hubbard. J. M. W. Turner, Part 1. I believe that these works of Turner's are at their first appearing as perfect as those of Phidias or Leonardo, that is to say, incapable of any improvement conceivable by human mind. John Ruskin The beauty of the Upper Thames, with its fairy houseboats and green banks, has been sung by poets, but rash is the minstrel who tunes his lyre to sound the praises of this muddy stream in the vicinity of Chelsea. As yellow as the Tiber and thick as the Missouri after a flood, it comes twice a day bearing upon its tossing tide a unique assortment of uncanny sights and sickening smells from the swarming city of men below. Chelsea was once a country village six miles from London Bridge. Now the far-reaching arms of the metropolis have taken it as her own. Chelsea may be likened to some rare spinster, grown old with years and good works, and now having a safe home with a rich and powerful benefactress. Yet Chelsea is not handsome in her old age, and Chelsea was not pretty in youth, nor fair to view in middle life. But Chelsea has been the foster-mother of several of the rarest and fairest souls who have ever made the earth pilgrimage and the greatness of genius still rests upon chelsea as we walk slowly through its winding ways by the edge of its troubled waters among dark and crooked turns through curious courts by old gateways and piles of steepled stone where flocks of pigeons wheel and bells chime and organs peal and wind sigh we know that all has been sanctified by their presence, and their spirits abide with us, and the splendid beauty of their visions is about us. For the stones beneath our feet have been hallowed by their tread, and the walls have borne their shadows, so all mean things are transfigured, and over all these plain and narrow streets their glory gleams. And it is the great men, and they alone, that can render a place sacred. Chelsea is now to the lovers of the beautiful a sacred name a sacred soil a place of pilgrimage where certain gods of art once lived and loved and worked and died Sir Thomas More lived here and had for a frequent guest Erasmus Hans Sloane began in Chelsea the collection of curiosities which is now developed into the British Museum Bishop Atterbury who claimed that Dryden was a greater poet than Shakespeare, Dean Swift and Dr. Arbuthnot all lived in Church Street, Richard Steele just around the corner, and Lee Hunt in Sheen Row, but it was from another name that the little street was to be immortalized. If France constantly had forty immortals in the flesh, surely it is a modest claim to say that Chelsea had three for all time. Thomas Carlyle, George Eliot and Joseph Mallard William Turner Turner's father was a barber his youth was passed in poverty and his advantages for education were very slight and all this in the crowded city of London where merit may knock long 
and still not be heard and in a country where wealth and title count for much when a boy barefoot and ragged he would wander away alone on the banks of the river and dream dreams about wonderful palaces and beautiful scenes and then he would trace with a stick in the sands endeavoring with mud to make plain to the eye the things that his soul saw his mother was quite sure that no good could come from this vagabondish nature and she did not spare the rod for she feared that the desire to scrawl and daub would spoil the child but he was a stubborn lad with a pug nose and big dreamy wondering eyes and a heavy jaw and when parents see that they have such a son they had better hang up the rod behind the kitchen door and lay aside force and cease scolding for love is better than a cat of nine tails and sympathy saves more souls than threats the elder turner considered that the proper use of a brush was to lather chins but the boy thought differently and once surreptitiously took one of his father's brushes to paint a picture the brush on being returned to its cup was used the next day upon a worthy haberdasher whose cheeks were shortly colored a vermilion that matched his nose this lost the barber a customer and secured for the boy a thrashing young turner did not always wash his father's shop windows well nor sweep off the sidewalk properly like all boys he would rather work for someone else than for his folks he used to run errands for an engraver by the name of smith john raphael smith once when smith sent the barber's boy with a letter to a certain art gallery with orders to get the answer and hurry back mind you the boy forgot to get the answer and to hurry back then another boy was dispatched after the first and boy number two found boy number one sitting with staring eyes and open mouth in the art gallery before a painting of claude lorraine's when boy number one was at last forcibly dragged away and reached the shop of his master he got his ears well cuffed for his forgetfulness but from that day forth he was not the same being that he had been before his eyes fell on that claude lorraine he was transformed as much so as was lazarus after he was called from beyond the portals of death and had come back to earth bearing in his heart the secrets of the grave from that time turner thought of claude lorraine during the day and dreamed of him at night and he stole his way into every exhibition where a claude was to be seen and now i wish that claude lorraine was the subject of this sketch as well as turner for his life is a picture full of sweetest poetry framed in a world of dullest prose the eyes of this boy whom they had thought dreamy dull and listless now shone with a different light he thirsted to achieve to do to become yes to become a greater painter than claude lorraine his employer saw the change and smiled at it but he allowed the lad to put in backgrounds and add the skies to cheap prints just because the youngster teased to do it then one day a certain patron of the shop came and looked over the shoulder of the turner boy and he said he has skill perhaps talent and i think the recording angel should give this man a separate page in the book of remembrance and write his name in illuminated colors for he gave young turner access to his own collection and to his library and he never cuffed him nor kicked him nor called him dunce 
whereat the boy was much surprised. But he encouraged the youth to sketch a picture in watercolors, and then he bought the picture and paid him ten shillings for it. And the name of this man was Dr. Munro. The next year, when young Turner was fourteen, Dr. Munro had him admitted to the Royal Academy as a student, and in 1790 he exhibited a watercolor of the Archbishop's Palace at Lambeth. The picture took no prize, and doubtless was not worthy of one, but from now on Joseph M. W. Turner was an artist, and other hands had to sweep the barber shop. But he sold few pictures, they were not popular. Other artists scorned him, possibly intuitively fearing him, for mediocrity always fears when the ghost of genius does not down at its bidding. Then Turner was accounted unsociable. Besides, he was ragged, uncouth, independent, and did not conform to the ways of society, so the select circle cast him out, more properly speaking, did not let him in. Still he worked on, and exhibited at every academy exhibition, yet he was often hungry, and the London fog crept cold and damp through his threadbare clothes, but he toiled on, for Claude Lorraine was ever before him. In 1802, when twenty-seven years of age, he visited France, and made a tour through Switzerland, tramping over many long miles with his painting kit on his back and he brought back rich treasures in way of sketches and quickened imagination. In the years following he took many such trips, and came to know Venice, Rome, Florence, and Paris as perfectly as his own London. When thirty-three years of age he was still worshipping at the shrine of Claude Lorraine. His pictures painted at this time are evidence of his ideal, and his book Liber Studiorum, issued in 1808, is modelled after the Liber Veritatis. But the book surpasses Claude's, and Turner knew it, and this may have led him to burst his shackles and cast loose from his idol. For in 1815 we find him working according to his own ideas, showing an originality and audacity in conception and execution that made him the butt of the critics and caused consternation to rage through the studios of competitors. Gradually it dawned upon a few scattered collectors that things so strongly condemned must have merit, for why should the pack bay so loudly if there were no quarry? So to have a turner was at least something for your friends to discuss. Then carriages began to stop before the dingy building at 47 Queen Anne Street, and broadcloth and satin mounted the creaking stairs to the studio. It happened about this time that Turner's prices began to increase, like the Sibyl of old, if a customer said, I do not want it, the painter put an extra ten pounds on the price. For Dido building Carthage, Turner's original price was five hundred pounds. People came to see the picture, and they said, The price is too high. Next day, Turner's price for the Carthage was one thousand pounds. Finally, Sir Robert Peel offered the painter five thousand pounds for the picture. But Turner said he had decided to keep it for himself, and he did. In the fore part of his career he sold few pictures, for the simple reason that no one wanted them. And he sold few pictures during the latter years of his life, for the reason that his prices were so high that none but the very rich could buy. First the public scorned Turner. 
Next, Turner scorned the public. In the beginning, it would not buy his pictures, and later, it could not. A frivolous public and a shallow press, from his first exhibition, when fifteen years of age, to his last when seventy, made sport of his originalities. But for merit there is recompense in sneers, and a benefit in sarcasms, and a compensation in hate. For when these things get too pronounced, a champion appears. And so it was with Turner. Next to having a Boswell write one's life, what is better than a Ruskin to uphold one's cause? Success came slowly. His wants were few, but his ambition never slackened, and finally the dreams of his youth became the realities of his manhood. At twenty, Turner loved a beautiful girl. They became engaged. He went away on a tramp-sketching tour and wrote his lady love just one short letter each month. He believed that absence only makes the heart grow fonder, not knowing that this statement is only the vagary of a poet. When he returned, the lady was betrothed to another. He gave the pair his blessing, and he remained a bachelor, a very confirmed bachelor. Perhaps, however, the reason his fiancée proved untrue was not through lack of the epistles he wrote her, but on account of them. In the British Museum I examined several letters written by Turner. They appeared very much like copy for a Josh Billings almanac. Such originality in spelling, punctuation, and use of capitals. It was admirable in its uniqueness. Turner did not think in words. He could only think in paint. But the young lady did not know this, and when a letter came from her homely little lover, she was shocked. And then she laughed. And then she showed these letters to a nice young man who was clerk to a fishmonger, and he laughed. Then they both laughed. Then this nice young man and this beautiful young lady became engaged, and they were married at St. Andrews on a lovely May morning, and they lived happily ever afterward. Turner was small, and in appearance plain, yet he was big enough to paint a big picture, and he was not so homely as to frighten away all beautiful women. But Philip Gilbert Hamerton tells us, fortunate in many things, Turner was lamentably unfortunate in this, that throughout his whole life he never came under the ennobling and refining influence of a good woman. End of part one of J. M. W. Turner.